You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people, and we are broadcasting to the Kulin Nations. Our focus is economics, that is, how stuff is produced and distributed. We recognise that for many tens of thousands of years, First Nations people's connection to country successfully embodied the world's oldest continuous economy, which was catastrophically disrupted by genocide and displacement. We acknowledge that we have much to learn to reshape our current extractive and exploitive system to achieve sustainable prosperity for everyone. Radio MMT Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Well, hello to our lovely listener. Thank you for joining us for the next hour. I'm Anne, your host, and with me today I have a guest, Jackson. Hello, Jackson. Hello, Anne. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you for coming to keep me company. Absolutely. The astute listener will have noticed there is a severe lack of Kevin today. So Jackson and I are wishing Kevin a speedy recovery, and I'm sure it will be one. Absolutely. We should mention that uh, Kevin and I, we met you, I think, at a Rethinking Capitalism workshop that was conducted by modernmoneylab.org.au. Yep. They offer uh, postgraduate studies in modern monetary theory, which is the economics we look at in this show, and they mix it up with a bit of ecological economics. So it really is the economics you'd want to study. Yes. And yeah. uh, Jackson, you've come along to the odd pub meetup as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have. Honestly, it's um, it's a wonder I get out of the house sometimes. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's really good to meet like-minded people and who who would have thought that going out on a Friday night and chatting about economics would be so enjoyable? Who'd have thunk it, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so I do have to ask you, Jackson, what is your MMT story? How did you get into this economics? Uh, my my background is in radio, not on the mic. I was I was the, the technical guy, the back end. Uh, I've got a, a degree in audio production, so... As far away from economics as a, as I think you can get, mm-hmm. but uh, as with I'm sure a lot of people, things changed in 2020. I had a, a friend of mine started talking about MMT, and and I'd sort of vaguely heard about MMT. I definitely didn't really understand it, but me and him and and a couple of other people, we had not much else to do, so we got very much into MMT, and it was probably not very long, maybe a few months before we started making short videos trying to explain some of the basics of MMT. So we we started putting those out, not because we thought we were experts, but because we were trying to find short videos to explain it. And there were hour long lectures and, and stuff like that. And, and we felt like we need like really focused bits. That on like, is a wonderful contribution you've yeah. made. And they are animations, aren't they? Like little five, 10 minute animations. Yeah. You know, <laughs> once we all came back out and all got busy again then I didn't have time to do the animation part of it because that was a lot of work but Mm. yeah we made a few little five minute animations to try and explain some of the basics. Where can people find those? Uh, So they're on YouTube, PEGS Institute, P-E-G-S. So there might be more in future, but um, so well, that's we'll so see. cool to hear you had the MMT lockdown. That's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the lockdowns were good for something. Yeah. And speaking of visual media, the thing that we're all very excited about here in MMT land is MMT the movie that is coming to Melbourne. So we mentioned modernmoneylab.org.au before, and they are hosting this tour of a movie that is called Finding the Money. And it now has a bit of an extended season in Melbourne. I think that's testament to the popularity of this topic. 
the first screening you'll be able to see of this movie will be on Wednesday, the 28th of February, and that will be at the State Library of Victoria, and you can find tickets through the Melbourne Sustainability Festival. So that's sustainabilityfestival.au. And then there is also a screening that Modern Money Lab is putting on at Trades Hall in Carlton, and that will be on Friday the 8th of March at 7pm, and afterwards there will be a Q&A with both the director, Maren Poitras, and the featured economist, the MMT economist, Professor Stephanie Kelton, who is also the author of The Deficit Myth. So it is a wonderful opportunity to actually put your curly questions to the economist herself. Uh, also, on the 9th of March, Stephanie will be speaking again at the State Library of Victoria as part of the extended Melbourne Sustainability Festival event listings, and you can find it there and get tickets as well. Just to give people a sense of what this movie is like, we could throw to um, the teaser of this movie and uh, Kevin and I had an opportunity to speak with Maren Poitras, the director. So much of the public discourse, it's like we're going through life with one eye shut and one eye open, and we're only getting half the picture. And then somebody like me comes in and says, well, let's make sure we see the full picture. New worries today over the exploding federal debt. The federal government is We're broke. bankrupting our country. We want to lift this crushing burden of debt off of our children, children and grandchildren. The government debt is not a burden on anyone. The national debt is exactly the opposite of what the orthodox story tells us. An unconventional economic theory is gaining some traction. Modern monetary theory, MMT. And one of its leading proponents is Professor Stephanie Kelton. One of the most influential and indeed controversial economists in America today. In conventional wisdom, surpluses are good, deficits are bad. We're borrowing trillions of dollars from China. Does the government have to borrow dollars? No. Of course not. The federal government is where the money comes from. When a fringe economic theory goes mainstream, you better pay attention. You could take the national debt clock that scares everyone and just rename it the US dollar savings clock. And I think everybody would have a very different kind of reaction. The true story of money is not the story that I've been told. Kevin and I have been very excited that there is actually such a thing as a movie about modern monetary theory or MMT, MMT the movie. So we are so pleased to be able to speak with the filmmaker herself, Maren Poitras. Welcome to Radio MMT, Maren, and congratulations on getting your project to the screen. Thank you so much. So glad to be here with you. Your documentary, which is actually called Finding the Money, will be coming to Australia in March and you will be touring with that documentary and it's coming to Melbourne at 7pm on the 8th of March at Trades Hall in Carlton in their beautifully refurbished uh, Solidarity Hall. Now, your film has already had its premiere in America and so before we talk more about the documentary itself and how you ended up making it... um, Tell us about how these screenings are going and what kind of reception you're receiving so far. Uh, Really, really fun. Um, It's a surprisingly fun film to watch with an audience. Um, You would think, you know, money and economics and finance (laughs) is going to be boring and kind of make people's eyes glaze over. So um, it has been really actually rewarding and really fun to watch it with audiences and hear the reactions. Um, there's especially one scene about 10 minutes in. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite scene. Um, <laughs> and I think it's the reason why you want to watch this with an audience. Um, it's just not quite the same when you're alone at home with your laptop. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it's going to be a really lively event. Mm. And then, you know, we've had the chance to just be able to interact with audiences afterwards and hang out. Um, Stephanie Kelton, a lot of the other protagonists in the film have been at these screenings and can answer questions afterwards. And that's what we're hoping for in Australia as well. And we're, we're usually happy to stick around sometimes for hours afterwards, no promises. Mm-hmm. Because the film, you know, the goal is to really lay a solid foundation to this theory and ideas um, and possibilities for the future. But there's a lot, um, a lot of questions that you're naturally going to have. And I did hear in a recent public lecture uh, 
economist Randall Ray, who is one of the founders of modern monetary theory, this this kind of economics that we're all talking about, he said, a picture is worth a thousand words, but a documentary is worth a million words. So everyone who is an advocate of MMT is getting very excited about this movie. Uh, uh, MMT is, a, is, is basically at this stage a, a fringe uh, economics discipline. It's not mainstream. Uh, I'm wondering how your audiences are going. Are we getting a, a bunch of fringe dwellers or are we tapping into the mainstream at all? <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, we've just only done so few screenings yet. So it's just been at five film festivals. That's a specific audience, I guess, kind of film goers, but they're not necessarily economics types. So I was very curious to see, you know, how their reception was in some places where a lot of people had never heard of MMT. So we went to like Bend, Oregon and had a great turnout there. You know, it's like, I was very excited to see that just everyday people were really engaging with the story, talking about it afterwards. And so a lot of people tell you, oh, nobody cares about economics or money, you know, but it's Mm -hmm. like, actually, I mean, everyone uses money every day and they're actually kind of secretly fascinated by it. You know, they've heard about the national debt their whole lives. They've heard that it's a burden on our grandchildren. Someday it's going to cause terrible consequences. And so we've always heard that. And yet they see more and more, you know, we're able to find $5 trillion to deal with COVID. (laughs) Um, And so they're really wondering in the back of their mind, wait, like, what is the national debt? Especially at the same time that they know, they know at, at some level, you know, that the U.S. dollar comes from the U.S. federal government or the Australian dollar comes from the Australian federal government. And so... On, on some level, they know that. And so it's like, well, why, why are we borrowing, you know, to begin with, if we can just create the money? Mm-hmm. And they really want to know the answer. And I think that's a much broader audience than, than maybe some, um, some film executives might assume. Yeah, so we, we do hear a lot of American accents in the film, but it's worth pointing out that it's extremely very applicable to Australia as well when we have politicians running around saying that we can't afford to fund aged care or early childcare education or all sorts of things. Yeah, for so many issues that people care about, you know, not just climate, mm. but so many, so many social and economic issues, right? Uh, just in terms of uh, making a documentary, uh, how's that process go these days? I mean, is there a lot of travel involved? Are you just following around with your iPhone 10 or have you got a whole <laughs> bunch of uh, more gear? Tell us technically uh, about some of the um, the challenges of putting this together. Yeah, there's an infinite amount of technical challenges. And probably if I knew any better or if I knew what I was getting into, I wouldn't have done it, honestly. Um, it was really, really hard. And I was advised not to do it many times. But Ooh. I just said, you know what, I've got to try. And um, I'm just kind of, you know, living on a little homestead, basically off grid and gardening that, you know, are living simply enough that in a way I could afford to put my time into this because right, it takes all of your time. And so most people don't have that luxury. Um, and so there was a ton of learning that had to happen right from understanding cameras and and all of that technology and lighting and sound. And so getting all that done and then into the editing process and really learning editing. Then the business side of things, the tax side of things. Like I can't stress mm. how difficult so much of this <laughs> is put together, let alone the fun, you know, the fundraising. There's but there's a lot of passionate people out there. You know, it is easier and easier to make films because the technology is more accessible. You know, I I wasn't using an iPhone, but I was using kind of a prosumer little camera, handheld camera, you know, as small as I could to stay light and, and be able to travel. You know, me just trying to just film a little bit off my little camera, you know, just very, very bootstrapped, right? Very grassroots. And so that's the process is just starting, starting on my own, taking the overnight bus up there. Um, and so, you know, when I did a, a lot of interviews during the, the Stony Brook MMT conference, where I just kind of set up a little studio uh, situation and filmed, you know, interview after interview, three and four hour interviews for three days straight. As many people as we could cycled through during that weekend. Luckily, got most of the shooting that we needed done in 2019, right before the pandemic hit. Um, and then it's a long editing process of wrangling this complicated story. Filmmaking is a risky business in that you've got this huge commitment of time and resources up front, and you don't even have a guarantee that you're going to get to a final product. Mm. So I imagine that you're very careful about which topics you choose to make a documentary about. So, of course, I have to ask you, how did you get ensnared in MMT and then decide to go ahead and make this film? Yes, it has been a long process and a long commitment. 
it's just a lot of passion that has to drive you because it is incredibly risky. Even when I have it complete, you know, you never, you never kind of know what's going to happen or if it will be successful or uh, if you will ever get paid um, and that sort of thing. <laughs> or at least break even. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Breaking even would be great. I would be very happy with that. But, you know, that being said, we're very confident and excited that this is one of those films that can break through and that can spread through word of mouth and gain that kind of uh, grassroots interest. You know, we know there's a lot of fans out there who have kind of been waiting for this story to be told. Mm. And that is partly the reason why I made it. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Well, re-listening to that conversation with Mara and I, I'm impressed once again at how determined she was to make this film. You know, I was thinking, Jackson, about how I was asking you about your MMT story and how you came to MMT. And I think we often find ourselves asking each other that because uh, learning about how our monetary system really works is not something we are taught at school. (laughs) No, no, certainly not. (laughs) It's not something we grow up with. And yet we all grow up with money. So it's like, you know, at an early age, we're probably given some money by our parents and we're shown how to use it and we have the importance of it drummed into us and we're told not to lose it and to keep it safe. And and then we're using it every day, just about for the rest of our lives. So we all kind of assume we know what money is, but most of us never realize that there's this entire monetary system And most of us will never even get to see all the moving parts up close and personal. So I think what happens is that, you know, we're all left to fill in the blanks for ourselves, to explain to ourselves what money is. And we end up with these deeply ingrained stories that we've told ourselves. And in fact, we're kind of encouraged by the mainstream, especially the mainstream economists, to think this way. And so it's no wonder that we all end up with this distorted view of what money is. I think one of the main distortions is that we think of money as a physical thing. Yeah. You know, maybe one of your first experiences of money is when the tooth fairy leaves a coin (laughs) under your pillow, right? Yeah. (laughs) So why wouldn't you think that money is a coin, is a physical object? And the thing is, it is much more accurate to think of money as a monetary system. And these physical objects are just a very small part of that system. Money is a human invention with all these moving parts that include like the legal system, they include what parliaments get up to, they include taxation and tax laws, and they include accounting and accounting procedures, and then there's all the departments involved like the treasury, and then there's central banks get involved and commercial banks and shadow banks and They're all using balance sheets and then we've got, you know, the paper and the plastic and the anti-counterfeiting technology. So it just goes on and on. And as one of the founders of modern monetary theory economist Randall Ray said, you know, money is a human institution. In other words, it's a set of rules that says how we're going to organize ourselves to act collectively. And so there's a lot more to money than just these notes and coins. Yeah. I always summarize it as saying that money is a legally codified accounting system. You'll you'll start to get your head around what money is a lot more if you can let go of this idea that it's the coin that the tooth fairy bought you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's an interesting phrasing, legalized accounting system. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because, of course, you can't just be creating money (laughs) willy-nilly. There are very strict procedures on how that happens. I do need to mention as well, we are in February. And so, of course, because it's February, it is subscriber month here at 3CR. So if you think you might not be up to date with your subscription, uh, now is the time to think about contacting 3CR and getting your subscription up to date. And you can do that by going to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Or if you prefer to talk to someone, you can phone us during office hours on 94198377. And I have to say, MMT has found a very happy home here at 3CR. And, 
You know, this is probably the only radio program that is dedicated to looking at the economy through modern monetary theory, and you will not find that on the airwaves anywhere else in Australia. It's well worth subscribing to 3CR just, I think, to keep Radio MMT on the air. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev at 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne, Australia. And you're with Radio MMT. I'm Anne, your host. Today I'm with Jackson and it's so lovely to have your company today, Jackson. It's it's lovely to be here. <laughs> and I'm sure Kevin is resting up and drinking lots of uh, orange juice. <laughs> I hope so. Um, if I can jump in, and you're, you're sorry about the tooth fairy, reminded me of a story from David Graeber's book, uh, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Mm-hmm. He's talking about debt, and he talks about part of the origins of uh, Santa Claus or, or Father Christmas. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about how when people give gifts to one another uh, of any kind, you know, a, a birthday present or just a, a gift for, for any reason, there's actually an implied debt in giving that gift. I give you a gift, you have this uh, sort of social obligation to give me back a gift at some point in the future of, you know, roughly equal value. But then we have Santa Claus, uh, he gives you a gift and and it's literally impossible for you to give it back to him. <laughs> you You gain something without incurring a debt to a magical man that comes down your chimney. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much to say about debt, and um, we will say it, Jackson, I think, because it comes with so much emotional baggage and you just have to say the word debt and you start putting the fear of it into people. And economists are always talking about debts and credits and it, it gets very confusing. But One of the ways I orient myself to the way economists are talking about debt, including how the MMT economists talk about it, is I always go back to this idea that money is an IOU. So money is a very particular kind of social agreement, and that social agreement is an IOU. And so this idea of an IOU, that reminds me, okay, there's an I, there's a U, and there's a transaction between them. And from the I point of view, the I has a debt, and from the U point of view, the U has a credit. And so people shift around when they're talking about debts and credits because they're two sides of the same transaction. And so sometimes people will refer to the transaction as a, as a debt and sometimes they'll refer to it as a credit. And so that's one way of yeah. finding your way through the confusion of all of this. I, I'm studying the, the modern money lab course that you mentioned earlier Mm. and one of the early subjects I did there was a a test question that was what is what is credit and yeah like wait are we talking are we talking debt are we talking credit which side of the the coin am I on here exactly (laughs) exactly I I found that very challenging everyone knows intuitively what an IOU is so I find that's the best way to orient yourself well let's head back into that interview with Maren Poitras Yes, you mentioned uh, Stephanie Kelton, and she is sort of the central uh, protagonist in this story. So I'm just wondering, of all the uh, modern monetary theory economists, including first generation, second generation, maybe even the third generation now, why was it that you honed in on Stephanie? You know, she has just kind of emerged as a great communicator of the subject. She didn't come up with it all by herself. And she wouldn't wouldn't say that, right? Mm-hmm. Once Warren Moser and Bill Mitchell started getting on the, the listserv, you know, the PKT listserv, which is kind of the origin story that many of them tell. Mm. And Stephanie was on that listserv mm. as a graduate student uh, in the 90s. And 
through this whole process of them coalescing and digging through the ages and the literature, they found, you know, there were pieces of what Warren was talking about and what Bill were talking about. There were pieces of that throughout uh, historical writings from even back to Adam Smith and through Keynes and uh, Abel Lerner, right? There's all these uh, historical figures that finally that the MMT academics, as Randy Ray will say, they put they finally were the ones to put it all together and make it a cohesive theory. Mm. Um, so Stephanie, she was she was there early in the journey. You know, she was also very skeptical when she first heard about it as as a graduate student, but she decided to do the hard work to dig in and 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 write a complicated paper by going to the Treasury in the US and going to the Fed and saying, okay, how does this actually work on an operational level? You know, when is the money created? When is it destroyed? How do the balance sheets work? And so she dug into all of that doing the research. And to her shock, at the end of that process, she ended up where Warren Moser had ended up. Mm -hmm. And so even though she was skeptical, once she did the research, it was very hard for her to um, to disagree. And that kind of set her on this mission to share this information with the rest of the world, uh, with policymakers. And so I think she's the one who's really able to communicate such a complicated subject in a in a really engaging way. You know, she's she's a great speaker. She's great with journalists. She's great in front of the camera and on TV. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, that's what it takes to kind of communicate <laughs> these ideas. Even sometimes, you know, you need someone who can get in front of the camera. And, and so obviously in a movie, uh, that's what we need as well. This is your first documentary? Directing, yeah. Yeah, so you're a first-time documentary maker. Stephanie's become a fairly prominent um, uh, person. Uh, how did that relationship build? Um, I went to an MMT conference in 2018 in uh, New York, and that's where I first met Stephanie. And then a couple months after that, I, I interviewed her. But she was just she was so busy, you know, just so busy at the time. You know, in 2019 was really when MMT was exploding into the mainstream media. Stephanie was doing so many lectures and interviews with journalists. So I was able to capture a little bit of that verite footage mm. because the beginning of 2019 is when the Green New Deal was first proposed by AOC. It was when AOC mentioned the word modern monetary theory, MMT, in, a, in an article. And that's when things just exploded. All of a sudden, you know, MMT was getting all sorts of press and news coverage. And so... It was right around that time I was trying to get her her attention too um, and get some of her time. And so she was very gracious enough to let me follow her around to a few things. And, you know, she's very generous, unbelievably generous with her time um, and a real, I think, teacher. You know, you can tell she just cares about teaching the subject matter. She was a teacher for such a long time mm -hmm. and, and still is. So, you know, she still puts her students first in, in all of this, even though, you know, the journalists and the press are trying for a lot of her attention. Um, the students always come first because I think that's kind of who she is. Yeah, well, Stephanie did end up writing the book called The Deficit Myth, which I highly recommend people get a hold of. And it is available in the Melbourne Public Libraries if you're in Melbourne. And I guess you, you did end up following Stephanie around for a while. And I was wondering if you um, got a sense of the kind of courage it takes to swim against the tide because, of course, modern monetary theory is challenging mainstream economics to its very core. So I wondered if you got a sense of um, Stephanie as a courageous woman. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, in my in my outline, you know, I have one little scene that was actually labeled courage. Um, mm. So I think you're, you're kind of nailing it, the, the, the story pieces here. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what drew me to her as well is that because I could see from the very beginning, you know, the backlash and the conflict and the controversy, right? And, and what we see on Twitter, you know, it's not the nicest, mm. you know, they're out there and they're trying to share their ideas because they care about influencing the public debate because they decided, you know what, it's just a little too slow in academia to try to shift this entire field. Mm -hmm. But there's so much that kind of needs to change on a foundational level, they think for mainstream economics or needs to be replaced even, you know, so they decided to get on Twitter to, to share their ideas and to try to influence the political debate, especially after the 2008 global financial crisis, when there were so many dire consequences, so many people unemployed, and so much room for the government to spend more, mm. when instead, that was the, the height of debt hysteria, you know, and fear of the national debt. Mm -hmm. And so they were on Twitter, but they would get, you know, they're so often attacked, and, mm -hmm. um, and it gets a little bit nasty. And so I could tell, you know, there's a lot of heat coming her way. And, 
And that's happened to a lot of, you know, women economists, even very recently. I'm thinking of Isabella. Yeah. So Isabella Weber and her inflation theory just this last year, right? Same thing happened. She put out this very valid theory of inflation that happens to be empirically uh, more accurate. Um, but she was attacked because it didn't match the the free market ideological theory that, oh, there's no way that corporations could be uh, raising their prices just because they can't, you know, they're not supposedly more greedy than they ever were before. <laughs> Do you think the viciousness of the attack is more strident against women or economics is a very male dominated field? Um, I mean, maybe the punches are just flying around everywhere. Yeah, you know, I think they are definitely flying around everywhere. But it is interesting, you know, that there's this pattern of strong female economists who are really challenging the mainstream at its core. And it just happens to be a very white male dominated field. And, you know, we have we have Isabella Weber, we have Stephanie Kelton, we have Kate Rayworth, we have Mariana Mazzucato, you know, I think of those as really these kind of leading female economists changing, Mm -hmm. changing the field, and it needs to be changed. And I think if your, your professional career is founded on, you know, maybe what you won a so-called, you know, Nobel Prize in economics in and what you've been writing textbooks about for decades. You know, if you have to go back and say, oh, wait, actually, you know, some of those basic assumptions were wrong or most of those basic assumptions were wrong. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very hard thing to do, even to admit out loud, let alone to even allow yourself to think that. And so I think that's a hard position for the the mainstream economists to find themselves in. And I think it's natural that they would have this kind of emotional, visceral response. So the movie, as we understand it, uh, is predominantly focused on Stephanie Kelton. Uh, were there any other figures or characters that uh, that caught your attention uh, while making the documentary? Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's such a group effort. And so it's definitely important to me to show some of the group. You know, I always feel really bad that certain people didn't make it into the film. Um, there is kind of, I think, a strong ensemble cast in the film. You know, it is, of course, pretty American-based because I'm based in the U.S., mm-hmm. And a lot of the folks coalesced at Kansas City at a certain time. And so I kind of focus on that as their hub. So yeah, so we have, you know, Randy Ray is in the film. We have Warren Moser. We have uh, Lua Yule, who was a student and, and was based at Kansas City as well. We have Fadal Kaboob, who um, now is in Africa and, you know, really focuses a lot on implications of MMT for developing economies. Um, of course, we have Matt Forstadter. Uh, and we have Pavlina Chernova. You know, we, we interviewed Nongo Sambasila from Senegal, but very unfortunately, I have to say, his interview didn't make it into the film. And so I'm really sad about that. Mm. Right now, even I'm grappling with trying to edit some extra scenes to hopefully even just post on YouTube after the film is released, because there's so much more that deserves to be in the film. Mm. You know, I think some of the most exciting insights are for developing economies and really changing the, the development paradigm. You know, the mainstream development paradigm is so riddled with problems from the IMF and the World Bank, mm. you know, they're in these terrible debt traps. And so MMT provides a lens to understand, you know, how they can get out of that and how they can employ so many more people. They don't have to suffer 50% unemployment and no public services when they have real resources that they can mobilize. But hopefully we'll either release extra scenes or guide folks and help provide more resources on our website. And there's a lot of great podcasts and videos and articles and books that you can go check out to find out more. So that website that Maren was mentioning for her film is findingmoneyfilm.com. So you can go there to find out more about the film and those resources that Maren was mentioning. So there was a lot in there, Jackson, and I had a few favourite things that stood out for me. Um, Maren was mentioning someone called AOC, and so in case you're not following American politics, AOC is the media nickname that was given to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and she is a US federal representative in the Congress, and when she was elected in 2019, at the age of 29, she was the youngest woman to serve in the Congress. And, of course, she's a favourite of the MMTs because she has advocated for a federal jobs guarantee, which is a part of the way MMT looks at how you manage an economy. And uh, AOC was also advocating for a Green New Deal, and you do need to look at the details of Green New Deals because they come in many shapes and forms. Yes, yeah. Uh, But the one that I think she was uh, sponsoring was one that we would probably also agree with. 
And we also heard Maren mention Isabella Weber. And just quickly, Isabella is a German economist and assistant professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. And in December 2021, in an op-ed that she published in The Guardian, she argued that strategic price controls could help control inflation in bottleneck situations. And she was heavily criticised by mainstream economists, which, according to The New Yorker, made her the most hated woman in economics. (laughs) (laughs) Which we would actually see as a guarantee that you're probably doing something right. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And Paul Krugman, who is, uh, he's a journalist and he's an author and he's authored quite a lot of the mainstream economic textbooks that are used uh, at university level. Uh, He called her truly stupid, uh, for which he later did apologise. But anyway, it gets pretty (laughs) nasty out there in uh, the macroeconomic debates. I'm James Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle and you're listening to Radio 3CR. But Myron was mentioning how the origin story of the MMT itself, and she mentioned this thing called the PKT Listserv, which back in the days, do you remember the Listservs? No, that's probably a bit before my time. Before your time. I think it was like when the web before pictures, you know. But anyway, there was this post-Keynesian thought discussion list. And in the early days uh, of cyberspace, that was where the heterodox economists would get together. And this is where Warren Mosler, Bill Mitchell and Randall Ray all first met around 1997. And Stephanie Kelton eventually got onto that list as well. And Warren was telling anyone who would listen to him about his insight And, of course, Warren was actually from the finance world, not the academic world. So he was a bond trader and he'd seen up close and personal how this bond trading or this trading of treasury bonds or treasury securities that are issued by the federal governments, he understood how they worked. And he was insisting that when the federal government was issuing bonds, this was not the federal government borrowing money. And everyone else seemed to think this was all about the federal government borrowing money. And even Stephanie herself was a bit unsure about what Warren was saying. So she went and did her thesis on this and she looked under the hood of all these institutions like the central bank. And to her surprise, as Maren says, she came to the conclusion that Warren was correct. And it is such a fundamental point because once you understand that the currency issuing government is not needing to borrow currency, then there's all sorts of implications that flow from that. And, you know, I was wondering, Jackson, how Stephanie got past the gatekeepers even. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. In in economics, I mean, if you listen to uh, someone like uh, Claudia Sam and the stories she tells about the sort of sexism that goes on in economics it's unbelievable so to come in as, as a sort of renegade with a, a fringe theory that must be next level yeah that must be incredibly difficult and stephanie wears that one very well so she will be touring with the film so it's a great opportunity to come along and see her at trades hall or at the state library the other thing that Maren was mentioning was this debt hysteria. (laughs) And as we were saying before, debt is this loaded word that comes with a lot of emotional baggage. And for sure, debt can be a scary thing. And for sure, we do understand that debt is something that can ruin lives and it can ruin businesses. And I think it's this personal uh, experience of debt that the fear mongers are then using because what we understand now through MMT is there is a very particular scenario in which you don't have to worry about being in debt. And it's only one entity in the whole economy that doesn't have to worry about having a debt. And that, of course, is the federal government. So the Australian federal government is the entity that is issuing Australian dollars 
So long as its debt is in Australian dollars, it can always create the dollars to pay the debt. Now that has not always been the case and I'm not sure what you know about the history of this. I did see some passing comment that at one point Australia had debt in British pounds and I think it was just after World War I or World War II. And so then they would have to worry about yes. having that debt because the Australian Federal Government does not issue the pounds. So I feel like we're all traumatised. <laughs> We've got this yes, collective trauma yeah. at having this debt. I feel, I feel there's a lot of that, uh, not just the sort of in uh, economics realm, the politics realm as well. There's something awful happened decades ago and we're still sort of feeling the aftershocks of that. And I'm sure the government debt is, is no different. Exactly. So the first thing to think about when we're talking about debt is, is this the very particular scenario where we're talking about the debt of a currency issuing government the debt is in the currency that they issue and they're also floating their currency. And if you've got that scenario, that's what the, uh, the modern monetary theory economists call monetary sovereignty. So if you've got monetary sovereignty, debt is not a scary thing for you. Yeah. So what you need to listen out for if you're hearing people talk about debt is are they talking about private debt or public debt? And when people are talking about public debt, they'll sometimes call it government debt and they'll sometimes call it the national debt, which isn't quite correct because that's the public and the private debt. But we need to figure out who's got the debt and what currency the debt is in. And if we're talking about private debt, yes, that can be a scary thing and that can, in fact, make economies more fragile. But if we're talking about public debt, particularly the debt of the federal government, then I think we can all breathe a sigh of relief and think, well, we don't actually have to be scared that the government's going to run out of the dollars to pay off the debt. So that's the first thing to think about. Is it public debt or private debt? The other thing to notice about the federal government debt is that unfortunately it is technically correct to call it a debt. Now, am I right on this one, Jackson? I was going to say, don't ask me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think you'll find this probably some people will argue it both ways, but uh, yes, I, th I think you can technically say you're right there. In the language of finance, when you've got something called a treasury bond or a treasury security, you can also call that and get away with it, call it government debt. And that's because technically... The government owes whoever's holding that bond. It owes them the value of the bond plus a bit of extra money that's called the yield or the interest. Yeah. So there's a, there's a promise to pay someone something. So it, it is a debt. But I, I think the, the people who would argue that the government that's not a debt would say, well, you, you didn't need to issue that treasury bond in the first place. Right. But since the treasury bond does exist, that is a debt. So it is a debt instrument. And I guess the thing that distinguishes it from any other scenario where someone's issuing a bond, so corporations or state governments could issue bonds and they would, in fact, be creating a debt for themselves. The federal government is not creating a debt it can't pay back. And the other thing it's not doing is it's not borrowing when it creates that debt. And that's the main point. And that was that point that Stephanie Kelton finally agreed with Warren Mosler that when the Treasury is issuing bonds, it is not the federal government borrowing money. Yeah. What is the debt? And um, I'm wondering if you want to have a go at describing what it is in terms of savings. Well, you can trade Australian dollars for a Treasury bond, but you can't take that Treasury bond and and go and pay for your, your groceries with it. You can do that with Australian dollars. When the federal government or, or the RBA sells uh, a treasury bond, um, they're taking Australian dollars out of the economy and when they pay it back with interest, they're putting that money back into the economy and, and a little bit extra. Um, so I think the important thing to remember with treasury bonds, or at least the thing that helps me is... Um, thinking about which side of the ledger has Australian dollars, who's who's receiving Australian dollars and 
and who's giving Australian dollars? Which way, which way is the money going? Right. The other thing I think about with the debt is like where, where are these dollars coming from that are being turned into bonds? And correct me if I'm wrong on this, Jackson, but okay, let's say if I've got a bank account and there's $100 in my bank account, a deposit account, and then you've got a bank account, say, at Westpac, and you've got $100 in your bank account, and Kevin's sitting there and he's got $1,000 in his Westpac account, and 3CR might have a business account and they've got $10,000 in their bank account, if you subscribe this month in February. (laughs) So all those, all those deposits, what happens is the banks kind of throw them all together in a big pool and then they will use the majority of those deposits to buy bonds. So when you step back and look at the big picture of the economy, what you're seeing is that the savings of all the different people and all the different businesses, most of those savings, little did we know, (laughs) most of those savings have become bonds because the commercial banks like to buy these treasury bonds because they're going to earn a little bit more money on them than they would if they just left them sitting there as cash. Yes. So we should think of the national debt as the savings of the entire economy. And once again, we can all breathe a sigh of relief. Now, just the other day, I have to admit I was complaining that the tagline for this movie, Finding the Money, is there's another side to the national debt. And I thought back to pre-MTN and I was thinking, you know, I wouldn't have given a second thought to the national debt. And if I did, I probably thought, oh, well, I guess it is something that will have to be paid back someday. It's this horrible problem that's looming out there on the horizon somewhere, like all the other problems that are looming out there on the horizon. But it's beyond me (laughs) to figure out how we're going to pay this thing off. So I'm not going to worry about it. So I was thinking, well, who even cares that we've got a national debt? What kind of a selling point is this for a movie? And then earlier this week on February the 4th, the American edition of 60 Minutes aired an interview in which journalist Scott Pally spoke with the Federal Reserve Chair, Jerome Powell. So that's like the American version of a central bank. So he's the chair of the central bank. And the media reported that in this interview, Powell said that it's past time to get back to an adult conversation among elected officials about getting the federal government back on a sustainable fiscal path. Translation of sustainable fiscal path is I think he's saying that the government has been spending too much. So, of course, whenever you hear that word fiscal, we're talking about the spending and taxing that the federal government does. And I'm guessing that if they want the government to spend less, then they'll have to cut back on services. And if their past performance is anything to go by, they're probably not going to cut back on military spending. So here's an example of the debt and deficit fear-mongering being raised. Another economic hangover after the pandemic is a sharp increase in the national debt. 30 years from now, it is projected to be $144 trillion, or $1 million per household. Gentlemen, a prayer silence for the president of the Royal Society for putting things on top of other things. Jerome Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve. I thank you, gentlemen. This year, our members have put more things on top of other things than ever before. But I should warn you, this is no time for complacency. The U.S. federal government's on an unsustainable fiscal path, and that just means that the debt is growing faster than the economy. There are still many things, and I cannot emphasize this too strongly, not on top of other things. You know, we're effectively, we're borrowing from future generations. I myself, on my way here this evening, saw a thing that was not on top of another thing in any way. Shame indeed. I have the sense this worries you very much. It's time for us to get back 
to putting a priority on fiscal sustainability. But we must not allow ourselves to become too despondent. But is the national debt a danger to the economy? If there was not one thing that was not on top of another thing, our society would be nothing more than a meaningless body of men that gathered together for no good purpose. <laughs> this year, our Australasian members and the various organizations affiliated to our Australasian branches put no fewer than 22 things on top of other things. <laughs> RBA Deputy yeah. Governor Michelle Bullock says our unemployment rate will need to rise to 4.5%. That's to tame inflation, so the unemployment rate's got to rise. Well done, all of you. Yeah. But there is one cloud on the horizon. How do you assess the national debt? In this last year, our Staffordshire branch has not succeeded in putting one thing on top of another. Therefore, I call upon our Staffordshire delegate to explain this weird behaviour. Um, well, Mr Chairman, it's just that most of the members in Staffordshire feel whole thing's a bit silly. I suppose it is a bit. What have we been doing wasting our lives with all this nonsense? Yeah. Right, okay, meeting adjourned forever. Now I'm always going to think of the central bank board as the society of men who get together and put interest rates on top of other interest rates. <laughs> And I have to admit that this debt idea is not dying. It's like the zombie idea that keeps rising from the dead. And that's why we need to go and see this movie to protect ourselves from these zombie ideas. So, Jackson, it's been lovely having you for the hour. Thanks and for having me. And we have to make way for Mafelda. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests. And we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his mmted.org, educating masses on modern monetary theory. And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. So what's planned for next week? Kevin, there is still so much to talk about. We've got to expose all this rotten economics. Well, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good and I get it. Do you reckon we could use a bit more music? Well, I made a list of all these terrible economic theories. Like, have you heard of the theory of comparative advantage or the quantity theory of money or the loanable funds theory? Have you heard of a band called Single Gun Theory? Like, they're a really good band. <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole range of, like, macroeconomic music that I could bring into the show. Yeah, yeah, but we really need to do marginal productivity theory, not to mention the natural rate of unemployment and the money multiplier. You've got a pretty good singing voice. I play bass. <laughs> Bill, Bill, he plays guitar. I reckon we could form a macroeconomic band. Like, we could deliver this whole message by music. Well, we could call the band the Permanent Income Hypothesis, or the Ricardian Equivalence, or Rational Expectations. I think we're onto something here. We're trying to make macroeconomics more interesting to the masses. We're going to, like, form this band and sing it to them. And we're going we're to bring the economists in. We're going to get music.